All right. Hello to everybody on D Live and everybody on pill.net slash quite frankly TV. So we have a very exclusive group. Uh, as always tonight, and here it is, Friday evening, and I'm joined with my trusty co-host on this endeavor. It is Timothy Gordon, timothyjgordon.com. What's going on, Tim? What's up, Frank? How the hell are you, man? Oh, I'm feeling, I'm feeling great, and I can't wait to talk about these pages, man. I can't wait. Good shit. Yes, yes. It, it's just, I mean, it's, uh, it's evoking a lot of emotion at this point. And you can feel it, it building to that at least an emotional crescendo. Uh, there are a lot of things that we have to figure out in the last hundred pages here. Um, I don't know. What, what was your overall feeling of everything? That we can get into the details. There's a lot. I, number one, let me just say that I don't know if you're just a better reader than me of fiction or what, but you were the first one to pick up on the ambivalence and the. Um, sympathy with which Gibson Appleyard was written. I, I really, you pointed all that stuff out the last two weeks, and then I really thought, Pace Frank from Pace U. It's like, oh, wow, Gibson is a super sympathetic character. And now that the Slavic Pope, in particularly in this chapter, the, the highlighting of this entire set of chapters, this reading, is the ambivalence of JP2. Uh, no one knows how to interpret what he's doing, including Chris Gladstone this late in the game. And Gibson Appleyard, together with that beautiful passage that gave you chills last time, it's almost like he's ready to convert if only Pope John Paul II is legit and no one can make heads or tails of his pontificate to this day. So anyway, that, that, that's, that's the main thing that struck me. There were a lot of Catholic specifics, Easter eggs, in this reading, but just good, 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 good yeah. stuff. Yeah, and, and 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 to that, to those points about what is what is the deal about the Slavic Pope? What is what is going on there? There are a few little hints that that I I picked out that maybe that'll give us some kind of a uh, a hint. But yeah, Appleyard is increasingly sympathetic there. Um, he has a there. There is a. A, a desire for him to preserve the old world traditions of things. Um, you can see that it, he he knows that the globalist angle, the true globalist angle, the atheist globalist angle that would just steamroll everything would be so highly destructive to everything, to be to every to everyone. It would it would bring in a hellscape kind of reality. But beyond that, there is a um, not just a sympathy, but a, a real affection. That he has for the Pope that keeps getting rekindled here. I, I can't wait to jump it. Let's just do it now. Let's go to the beginning. Uh, three. We we started from five thirty, five twenty three, and we went to five sixty something. It's five sixty two. Now, it opens up with Christian. He's being hustled around to get the remaining votes for this common mind vote with the cardinals and the bishops uh, uh, again. We get that. But it's also where he makes uh, gives a little bit of a hint at how, well, if he's going to be on the road, if he's going to be traveling, if he's going to be flying between Europe and the, and the United States, at least that'll give him some time to start digging through Father Aldo's diary. And I was, I, I was hoping, and I'm so happy it is, that the diary was going to become a more important part of the story and the plot soon, and it certainly is. In these sections that we have it, big-time revelations come from that diary that we'll get to in a little bit. 
on um, page 524, this is the other thing that we are probably going to see some kind of a wrapping up in the next 100 pages, the last 100 pages. This is where Christian meets with his sister-in-law in London, and she expresses that there is something very wrong with Paul, that there, there's been some kind of split or turmoil at the lodge, and that it was worrying her so much that she had started praying the rosary. So this, this right here, there's got to be some kind of a tying up of this end with Christian and Paul. He's got to come to his brother's aid or at least try to. Oh, unbelievable. Unbelievable. Yeah, you were talking about spots you got the goosebumps when um, Confucianist, uh, you know, sister-in-law starts to pray the rosary. That's just, that's beautiful. There are so many people in our accursed age, Frank, that have come to the fullness of the truth through through the rosary in in similar fashion for no reason or in their rational mind they just start praying the rosary and then they they get it so yeah you sigh that was that was amazing and what do you pray the rosary every day yeah well okay so i definitely do i've i've had years where i pray it every day i definitely do during lent uh, i pray two or three entire rosaries a day during lent and then Summertime is always where I'm most spotty. I, I I try to I at the very least pray one one decade a day with my my kids. Sometimes summer's my worst time of the year after a, a Lent of praying two or three in a day. Mm. But generally, yes, I can't say every single day of the last ten years, but usually a, a, at the very least a couple of decades. Yeah, no, that's that's it's. I, I'd love to get up to to just be that consistent of one a day at least. That would be. Wonderful, but I'm learning. You know, I, I'm relearning. I mean, the the Apostles' Creed. I've, I never, I never was able to recite that from start to finish. I studied it in school um, because I went to Catholic schools from kindergarten to twelfth grade, uh, but it, it just never stuck. So I'm I'm relearning a lot of things, and even just the the sorrow from mysteries, everything. Like there's there's so much mechanics to the actual following along with the uh, with the beads themselves that I, the, the nuances and the intricacies of it all, it, it had completely gone over my head. So piecing it back together. And um, obviously, in times of turmoil, they just call to you, as it does to you, Sai, as you said, a Confucianist, who uh, really did not get anything of a background in this from Paul, that's for sure. And then here in uh, 527, or wait, what is this? Is, uh, 526, oh, yeah. 520 where is this yeah 527 this is where we start getting these kind of like bootleg missives that are being released to try to put the pope the slavic pope into really weird political situations especially when it comes to female altar girls female deacons can you please let me know about this? Because it's a very big sticking point. It's, it's used as a weapon in this to try to push for female altar girls and, and all of that in here. Um, one of the big things is that. Can you give us a little bit more of why the official reasoning for all male priests and altar boys? And obviously this is a feminist Marxist Bolshevik kind of a inversion and disrupting of an all-male space or we understand to disrupt anything that's been traditional is very um, is very valuable for these types of uh, these rabble-rouser types and groups as it is but as far as all-male priests all-male altar boys what is the the reasoning for that officially 
It's a good question, and I was hoping you were going to ask, Frank. Uh, okay, so Christianity, Christendom, as it's uh, consigned under the org chart, if you will, the living org chart of the church involves two, two patriarchies. Uh, there's a clerical higher patriarchy, all-male patriarchy, three parts, bishops, priests, and deacons. They're all male. Christ chose apostles because they're all male, and I'll, I'll talk about why he chose them in a second. The lower patriarchy is the lay patriarchy of male householders who are priests, prophets, and king to their households. Um, you know, they, they are responsible for the evangelization of their own household. On the clerical patriarchy, it is very, very important for the culture. You, you mentioned feminism, that there, there's a clerical patriarchy. Uh, Jesus chose all male apostles for a reason. But it also turns out to be important to the very nature of what we call Christology, the, the nature of very fundamental dogma about Christ. He says that his church, he's, and it says this several times in New Testament, in the writings of Paul, the church is related to Christ as the bridegroom relates to the bride. That's why the patriarchs in the church, the, the head prelates, must be male. It's uh, actually part of dogmatic theology. It's not just one of the disciplines of the church that can change. And, um, you know, think about Ephesians chapter 5. Think about 1 Corinthians. It, you know, Christ relates to the church. Church is always called she as a bridegroom does to his bride. Mm. And, and this is how um, men are to relate to their, their wives. Uh, think of Ephesians chapter 5. Very unpopular with the feminists. I, I wrote a book called The Case for Patriarchy, so I know all about this. When the, uh, you know, old Vigano, who I know you like, uh, as, I, as do I, Archbishop Vigano, has been a kind of bellwether for the Sankt Gallen Mafia, who are some of the characters in this story. They're still active in the Francis Pontificate. They were some of the kingmakers for the Francis Pontificate. Uh, cardinal Oriatini is one of them, and uh, the, uh, the, the Jesuit Cardinal. Michael Contino is his name in this. Yeah. Well, the two leaders of what's called the Sankt Gallen Mafia, they had a four-part agenda. We think to make Pope Benedict XVI resign, which seems to be part of this, an extension of them trying to make JP2 resign. I've mentioned it through lots of our shows. And to give us Pope Francis. Well, they had a four-part agenda. One was getting the Eucharist to the divorced and civilly remarried, which happened in 2016. It had been a, a project 30 years old by one of the Gallen members, one of the mafiosos. The other parts of this are female deacons and eventually priests because it will destroy the Christology. Yeah, it's all the feminist culture that destroys and rots out families and would rot out the clergy. Yeah. But also it's disruptive to the person of Christ himself and the way that Christ interfaces with the real living uh, human and divine body of the church in its Christology. So it, it's very really part of the four-part agenda of the St. Gallen guys, two of whom are on this panel of seven that we get to at the end of reading tonight. It also makes a lot of sense as to why not only the um, the injection of of, uh, of female, female presence in these ranks is so important, but also uh, outside of outside of the the, the satanic aspect but even just the allowing and the the turning a blind eye to the spreading of homosexuality there too um it, it, it does it does go hand in hand where i can see that as well um 
Now, on page 537, we have Christian and Slattery. They're back together again, and they debate. They're having a debate about the nature of the Pope. Once again, as you said, Tim, this comes up over and over again. What is it? Does he has he lost his faith? Uh, they're always analyzing his actions versus inaction. And then when and then we get a um, another mention of Rienvernunft, uh, who is Benedict, but it's not a very favorable mention. I was going to point this out. I had that. Okay, go on. You you go. This this shocked me. This shocked me. Right. And it, it, it's incredible. It's just incredible because everybody's always wondering what's the deal with with uh, with with Benedict and, and the, the fact that he was the first one. If this if this um, uh, what's it called this uh, retirement. What, 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 what do they call it? The. Uh, the, 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 the three, the uh, the uh, mind of the pre. What the hell was it called? No, the actual <laughs> the actual retirement. Uh, what was? Damn, hold on, wait a second. Benedict? No, no, no. The the what, what do they have him signing again? It's, the resignation the protocol. Resignation protocol. It's incredible now reading this that even Malachi Martin has has a little bit of uh, a little bit of distrust for someone like Benedict it's really interesting that how even though JP2 the Slavic Pope was able to live out his natural life as pontiff uh, it was Benedict who actually was the first one to trigger that that protocol that resignation protocol it's just incredible that this is this is the way that it's going along well I mean so I won't. I won't go on long. But look, the Rahners, the Maritans, the Rienvrumts, however you say that, the Kungs, the Courtney Murrays, the Von Balthazars, the Congars, the Delubaks. This is the first time that I had maybe a moment of pause where I thought maybe um, this book is just messing with us. Because I mean, some some faithful priests are like he's a he's a phenomenal liar, uh, uh, Malachi Martin. I trust him. I think this is real, but. Now, what you might not know is these are all real names. Uh, Carl, Carl Rahner, one of the leading uh, uh, worst theologians, pr- probably the known best worst theologian, German theologian, leading to the Vatican Council too, Carl Rahner. Jacques Maritain uh, was, fran- was real-life friends with uh, uh, rules for radicals, uh, what's-his-face, Alinsky. Uh, Rienbrum, the only fake name on this list. Like you said, that's Benedict. What the hell? This really threw me for a little. Hans Kuhn is probably the second best known uh, leftist radical theologian of the Vatican Council. John Courtney Murray, the only American lefty being cited at the council and actually at the council. Uh, Von Balthasar, who said hell is probably not populated. Uh, he's re, he reinstated what we call originism, this hope, this reasonable hope that all men are saved, even though Jesus says specifically that the, the gate to hell is wide and most take it. The gate to heaven is narrow and few take it. This is heresy. Uh, Yves Congar, a Frenchie who's uh, one of the other leading radicals, and Henri de Lubac. And, and all, these are real guys, and then all of a sudden you throw in Benedict, who has been a surprisingly, a, a conspicuously uh, small character in this book. But I, I've mentioned it several times. But he's been positive to this point, too. I mean, remember, he was the one right. that, that, that actually uh, that, that found the law uh, or made the policy or said that this was okay for Sessi's 
you know, a little order of traditionalist priests. Like he was the one to help rubber stamp that. So again, we're getting a we're getting a um, an inference or a hint that. Even the ones that you can trust the most have a little bit of uh, just they're, they're no nobody's perfect. I guess I don't know. Exactly. I, I, I'm totally. I was totally confused by that. I'm glad you. You're you're good. You're a very sharp reader, Frank. Nothing escapes you. That, that I had this highlighted. I didn't want to. Well, you know what? This is really this whole experience of doing this this book club has forced me, forced me in a way that I have never. If I know that I have to go out and actually lead a conversation. Um, you know, in in a in a co-hosted situation like this, and other people are following along, I just feel, I feel for it. I, I probably this is probably the most thorough I have ever read, to be honest. So yeah. I uh, I just really I think that's what's happening here. But this is here's a little bit of that that back and forth in five thirty seven. This is between uh, Damien and Chris Christian. Uh, do you think the Holy Father is still a Roman Catholic believer? Asks Christian. Yes. On what grounds? On the grounds of Roman Catholic faith. He refuses to abandon the basics. In morality, he maintains our Catholic opposition to abortion, contraception, homosexuality, divorce, and bedrock rules of that kind. In dogma, he champions all the main beliefs, the divinity of Christ, the privileges of Mary, heaven, hell, the last judgment. He'll never change on any of that. Okay, so he keeps banging away about those four or five moral rules, but all the while, he lets the whole church slide into chaos and ruin. Or are you prepared to argue that he's... Uh, he's a competent governor of the church. No, incompetent. But I'm prepared to argue. So even there, Damien says he's incompetent. Yeah. He, he agrees. But he's prepared to argue that he wouldn't be Pope, couldn't be Pope, if Christ didn't want him to be Pope. And I'm prepared to argue that anyone who expects the restoration of the old, comfortable church we knew when we were just in knee breeches can forget it. As much as we abhor it, we are praying. We are paying the piper for the intent of all those bishops at Vatican II. It was as though they were saying, "We don't know exactly what we're doing, but nobody—not God, not Christ, not the people of God, not the whole wide world of mankind—will tolerate the absolutist monarchy of the papacy any longer." And that's when they get into the reinvernment and uh, being at the council and being just as complicit in, in any of this but this section ends once again with a little bit of uh of strength he says maybe this will turn out this is damien once again he he always is a, a a character that you can rely on to to sit you up again he says maybe this will turn out to be another battle loss as you say but always remember gladstone the war won't be over till the last trumpet sounds and no matter how many battles we lose it ends with the victory of christ so can I, but I mean, great. Yeah, Slattery is always the one that, that sits you up straight again. I, I like that. But it's, it, look, I mean, just from a writerly perspective, uh, 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 the writer of fiction would know if I come up with a list of eight or nine guys and I'm writing something I've termed faction, they're all very well known guys. These are world historical figures. European titans of intellectual thought from within the church. And you know that in my little faction novel here, my rather thick faction novel, Rian Verumpft is a very famous man who will be Pope um, 16 years after this book is published. But everyone knows he's the, the cardinal prefect 
of the congregation of the doctrine of the faith. So I'm sort of play. It's like, what are you playing at, man? Like you, you cite seven or eight names as bad guys and you toss in with them one fictitious name with seven or eight real names. And that name is very badly papered over because we know who it is. He's a major guy. He was really the number two in the church doctrinally. I just don't know what he's playing at with that. That really threw me. Yes. Yes. No, I, I know. It, it, it really is. Uh, it's one of those things. It's one of those things. Uh, as you said, is he just a brilliant liar or what is it? I don't know. But I, I, I just, I, I've, I guess we got nothing else to go on, or at least I don't. Um, now, m- moving along on this, because it gets even stickier here. On 542, uh, 542. Now, there's a lot of things going on. A lot of things happening here. You've got that that uh, Shoah Foundation uh, concert that's going to be happening. You have the cardinals getting together. You have the Pope going to Russia. You, the, the common mind, but there's so many things going on at the same time, and they're trying to wonder, you know, what what is really going to happen? And, and Appleyard plays a lot here. Appleyard and Luca Damo, his relative, that's in in uh, Western intelligence. So you have Gustino Luca Damo, who is the pretty much the intelligence guy at the Vatican, right? And then you have this other guy, Luca Damo, that is uh, that works with Appleyard, and they are talking about the Pope, how, what, the way that the Pope is being nailed by all their friends. Here's another one, 542. The other way around, I called him. I told him that this was the fraud. Pl- this was a fraud, plain and symbol. And I asked him straight out what the Holy Father plans to do about it. This is about all these, these, these nonsense missives about altar girls and this and that, anything that's contradictory. Do you know what he told me? He told me the pontiff declared that such fraudulence must stop. He told me that the pontiff intends to mention the matter to Cardinal Secretary of State Graziani and Cardinal of all the relevant congregation. And that's it? Confused, Appleyard looked at both versions of the bogus papal instruction. He's not going to rescind? (laughs) Of course not. Pain was written all over uh, Giovanni's face. By now, the news has been communicated worldwide. There is an official copy, signed and numbered, in every one of the 4,000 chanceries. It's probably in each of the 19,000 or so parishes in your country, and in all those other dioceses and par- uh, uh, parishes throughout the world. It's a fait accompli. Too many cardinals and bishops have already praised it as a wise move. The Holy Father couldn't rescind all that. Why not? Gibb didn't know if he was more incensed at the betrayal of the Slavic Pope or of the pontiff's acquiescence. Great line. Great line. I was going to point that out, too. You know, uh, uh, and he hasn't got the power now, is what Luca Damo says. So there it is, once again, trying um, trying to figure out, I mean, even the, everybody is wondering. And these are people who are not even invested in the, in, uh, the, the Catholic Church surviving in a traditionalist um, sense. I mean, they, they see what it is, but they're wondering why, why one guy that, that honestly, honestly is not that bad. And, and here's the other thing, Tim, when he keeps asking, when, when Appleyard asked this several times to himself in the book, why do they want to get this guy gone when he acquiesces in the way that he does, when he is very progressive in his way, when he's very universalist in his thinking? Why do they want him out? And I think the real sticking point must just be the faith. 
It must just be that he has faith, that he does, he is a man who, uh, who uh, loves Christ, loves Mary, and, and has faith in all these things, and they are just really committed to the, the, the bringing the, uh, the demon to fruition. It has to just be it because they've got a guy. I think they're just irked by his presence because, you know, like throwing holy water on the, 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 the possessed person, they start writhing in pain. It just must be that he's a presence that they cannot stomach anymore. It has to be. What else? I mean, that's what Appleyard has been asking himself the whole book. What else could it be? Look, John Paul II's pontificate was the second, second or third, I think, second longest pontificate in the history of 266 popes, Frank, it's the second longest, meaning this question, if people out there aren't Catholic or are falling away Catholics or just don't really know, this is one of the central mysteries of the post-conciliar church, is what's the deal with that 264th pontificate two popes ago, JP2? Why did the lefties hate him so much? Why did they have a, and it, why did they hate the 265th so much too, reinvermpt? Why did they hate these guys so much? They were both at the council. They were both men of the council, and they both made many concessions to the left. But they came up with these secret mafioso clubs to avoid them. They, they hated them. And you're like, and Gibson says it several times, why are you resisting them? That already gives you everything you want. Mm. If you want to get caught up on postmodern Catholicism, Forget Francis. No one understands what, what the F's going on with Francis. But number 264 and number 265 together comprising uh, uh, 34 years of, of uh, the papacy. And they, they work hand in glove like that much more than you're getting here. Um, they're very close. Yeah. Why did the lefties hate him? I don't know. No one knows and everyone wonders it. People that know far more than I don't understand it. It's, it's truly, um, it's, when you talk about Occam's razor, me in a position of really knowing much less than than you and 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 the people that that you know that that dedicate themselves to studying and putting pieces together it's just occam's razor for me if there is a person in a position that truly does serve or could be easily manipulated to further along any kind of a process that you have made for yourself or for your view of how the world should be if you have a person in place, then why is it that you need to destroy the papacy? Why is it that you need to destroy a person who could be perfectly malleable to your cause? And it really is just about the Occam's razor for me is they are a spiritual outlier. They are not one of you. They want it gone. And not only that, but if anybody like them with some with a, a little bit more backbone, a little bit more traditionalist was ever in that post, and they had that kind of universal power, then that would be, they, they need to be able to have a fail-safe against anybody that comes up by turning this into, uh, you know, a, a ruling by committee. And that's why they wanted to get rid of the, the papacy to start ruling by these committees of cardinals so that they are pope alongside of them, as they are saying in that, that signing uh, gathering that we're going to do in just a second. But here it is in four, 545, is where you know Christian is that uh, he's he's running a crazy schedule, and this is where you start seeing the frenzy of preparations for the general consistory, the show a memorial concert, the pontiff's Russia trip, the rhythm of Gladstone's life geared down to a churning process. 
And all along the way, he's talking about how Mastroianni has been more and more vocal about about the process and about the world vision. So the grooming, like how Paul went through, seems it's being done a little bit more of a tempered pace with Christian. Because he said that as well. Um, and, then, and then we have on 546, Christian finally has a breakthrough with the diary. This is big. Um, so he's sitting down with it. About the only good thing about Gladstone as Holy Week approached was that he finally had some time to devote to Aldo Carnesecca's diary. There wasn't much comment in the journal, of course, blah, blah, blah. He went on through, blah, blah, blah. And then it was right there at the end. You idiot. Gladstone smacked his forehead with an open palm. That's when I knew things were going to get good. <laughs> as he scrambled down the stairs back to his rooms, it was right there in front of you, and you, pa- and you passed it over. He was still calling himself names as he sat down at the desk, Karnasek's journal in hand, and rifled back through the pages, searching for entries that he wanted. That was the thing that had thrown him off. It wasn't one entry Father Aldo had been talking about that lay at Gemelli Hospital. It was a series of entries linked together by one common thread. Within 20 minutes, Gladstone found what he was looking for. It took him another day to check a few things out and then have a chat with Monsignor Daniel. What he needed after that was to get to Giustino Lucadamo. And he says here, I don't know what's in the envelope, Giustino. I said envelope. Oh, I know what he's talking about now. Um, but I'll let you know what I do know. I know that each of the two popes who preceded the present Holy Father read its contents and left it to immediate successor. So it's been opened and it's been resealed. I know the envelope carries two papal inscriptions. First written by the old pope, reserved, uh, reserved the envelope for our successor to the throne of Peter. The second papal inscription written by the September pope, uh, says its contents concern the condition of Holy Mother Church after June 29, 1963. I know the envelope figured in the triage of papal documents at the beginning of Slavic Pope's reign and that both Father Aldo and uh, Cardinal Orientini, Archbishop Orientini back then, assisted at that triage. I know that Secretary of State Vincennes conducted the triage shortly before he was killed in a car accident and that held the envelope aside. I know that Monsignor Daniel, that not, I, I, and I know from Monsignor Daniel that no such envelope was among the private papers of the two prior pontificates that were given to the Slavic Pope. So he's talking about what we learned in the beginning of the very beginning of the book, that documentation about the enthronement and the and the that horrible um, the horrible ritual ceremony in the beginning of the book. It's the, it's the document that ultimately got Father Aldo killed, mm-hmm. and it was apparently never shown to the Slavic Pope. That's, that's what he's saying? That's what I think he's saying. That's I thought they were, to, I thought we were talking Fatima at first. When, right. I, when I first read this page, it took me till 548 to realize it was about the enthronement of Satan, Satan document. But yeah, I don't think Slavic Popes read it. That's clear. Well, they're matching dates and timelines, and they know that they need to find these documents now on the enthronement in the archives. Yeah. So now this is this is what another thing I cannot wait. Right now we have building up. Christian has got to find a way to get through to Paul. Paul is unresolved. We need to figure out what's going on there. This diary thing is leading him on a on a uh, on a uh, hunt now. I was going to say witch hunt, but it pretty much is. Um, it's leading him on a literal witch hunt that is going to take him into the Vatican archives, but they got to be able to do that without being noticed 
to find these enthronement documents that ultimately got Father Aldo killed. And there's there's more here. Um, there's so much that they put together around 547, 548. I'm going to find that envelope with your help or without it. I'm going to find it and read it and go from there, he says. And um, it's just it's just incredible. So they're going to be I like I like the dramatic irony. Sorry to jump in. No. About um, at the bottom of 547. And what? Oh, let me go up a little. You're positive the Slavic Pope didn't receive any such envelope. Monsignor Daniel is positive. And what about this enthronement business? We, the readers, know what the enthronement is. Any idea what that means or what has it got to do with the papal governance in the Vatican? None. I've assumed that the relevant date is June 29, 1963. But the only enthronement I can find any reference for during that year was the investiture of the old pope who sealed the envelope in the first place and left it for his successor. We know they're wrong. So that, you know, the plot thickens and the, the fun uh, heightens the, from our perspective, right? Well, you know what also uh, came uh, became increasingly clearer for me as well is this. Um, where that's five forty seven. Let's see here. The it's June twenty ninth, nineteen seventy seven. Confessional matter of the gravest kind. July third, nineteen seventy seven. Private audience with P. Uh, the I guess the Pope. Confessional material. Uh, too ill and too afflicted with domestic and foreign problems to undertake needful material sealed and inscribed. Long conversation. This is September 28th, 1978. Long conversation with the Pope, I suppose, about envelope left by immediate predecessor. Agrees no Pope will be able to govern the church through Vatican until enthronement undone. Okay? So, um, uh, Pope will do what he, uh, he can, but resealed envelope with second inscription concerning the condition of Holy Mother Church after June 29th, 1963. They need to un... So right there in this letter, in the September 28th, 1978, they're saying that the, nothing can be done to govern the church through the Vatican until the enthronement of Lucifer, of Satan, is undone. And um, they say, if memory serves, September 28th was one day shy of his death date without comment. So he returned his attention to the final entry. So it, there's, so much, um, there's so much timing there. I, uh, at first, I thought that maybe this, this was like, um, did they, did, but that, that doesn't make sense. If John Paul the first, what? if John Paul the first was killed, was killed so that they can enthrone the demon with the with the with the with the throne of Peter empty. Like I don't know if that needs to be, if that needs to be in transition. If there needs to be no pope enthroned in Rome so that this secondary evil ritual can be done. To be able to put something in place before they can they can uh, bring John Paul II in, but no, that was in 1963. Yeah, like so that would be what 14 years later. Yeah, like 77 is when JP1 has his 33 day pontificate. What, what were you thinking? Well, in 63, wasn't 63 is when Paul VI was brought in? Paul VI came in in the middle of the council. I think so. Yeah, no, I think 63 is when Paul. I think that's the year that that uh, Paul that John the 23rd died. I forget what time of the year, but 63 is So correct. when when was he announced Pope, Paul the Sixth? 
I can I can get it right now. Uh, it's the middle of the council. Oh, and I got and I cannot wait to show you these pictures, Tim. Um, for everybody out there at home, uh, my I just sent away four big reams of slides that my grandparents took in the '60s when they went to uh, Rome and they went to visit some family of ours in Italy. And the pictures are unbelievable. And at one point, I see a pope sitting there with his arms outstretched, but it looks like they're sitting right at the base of his seat. And I said, is that, is that, this is Pope Paul. How the hell is he, how did they get so close? I can't wait to show you these pictures. Amazing. And we, they must have gone to a Wednesday audience with him. I must have been. I don't know what was going on, but they got very close. Your grandparents are, are based there. Yeah, I mean, Frank, Frank's people told me about his grandparents since uh, when we first met years back. And uh, that's really, really, really cool. They must have gone to a Wednesday audience, which is a very old, practice okay john paul, paul the sixth frank's uh pontificate began first day of summer uh june 24 okay. 1963 right. so then i was gonna say if they if he was like if his first day as pope was sometime in late september like the day after this enthronement that would have been incredible but um but yeah, but either way, we have this. We have these notes here that have not obviously not been seen by the Slavic Pope saying that there would be no way to govern until it was undone. I guess that's another uh, indirect reference to the availing time that they have left from this enthronement ceremony. And um, so they're making all this stuff. And I started thinking, why, would, why wouldn't they destroy all this? But then again, I guess Malachi Martin gives us an answer that we can we can link to on uh, 550. And he says this, Chris laughed dryly. He was beginning to think the whole exercise was a waste of time. They're already in, you know, in the, in the archives looking around for these things. He says, um, he says there was only so many places where the old papers were stuffed away, and he'd been gone through about half of them. Maybe Vincenzo destroyed the envelope after all. Not a chance, Giancarlo. Uh, considered himself an expert on human nature. Remember your President Nixon. He could have saved himself a lot of trouble if he destroyed those tapes. I don't know why he didn't, and I don't know why Vincennes couldn't have destroyed the envelope, but I'll wager anything you'd like to name that in somewhere in the archives. You'll find it, Monsignor. I think that, aside from Nixon, I think that it's very important for these people to take, to, to have um, documents of what they do. You remember when they found the... Um, the mother church in in virginia all of how everything was meticulously documented and i think that's the last thing that needs to be done when they take the he's going through the diary now he's got there they're on the dates they understand that something was going on but now they have to reference back to what detective wagdilla and slattery found in virginia that very ornate box that was different from the rest that was definitely all of the documentation about the enthronement yes yeah that has to come together. Yeah, I think it does. Because uh, we, we don't even know what's become of uh, Wagdilla there. Yeah, right? he's been gone for a couple, for chapters now. Yeah, 200 pages. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I've been glued to my seat for the, the last 200 pages I've been all in. The, the first 300 pages was interesting, but not not the page turner that I was expecting, uh, but but interesting from a historian's perspective the last last 250 pages i've been all in man with this stuff especially yeah yes well well here here's the next big thing 552 552 we're getting to the end here but now everything is just so big in gravity this is where the pope he is has a, he's having a meeting the slavic pope is having a meeting with all of the rat cardinals 
All of the rats. I love it. He's sitting there with all the rats who place this resignation protocol before him, and we get a glimpse of the gravity of the situation. Says here, what they were handling... What they were handling then was explosive, revolutionary, ominous, nothing less than explosive. For if the Slavic Pope acquiesced in this, as he had done so much in, uh, with so much else, Petrine power would be invested not in a papal persona, but in a self-appointed committee. Nothing less than revolutionary. For this unique power would now be shared by so many fallible men without a divine guarantee. Until tonight, papacies had been limited had been limited uh, by none but the hand of God. In these seven cardinals were, if these seven cardinals were successful, the decision would be henceforth a collegial affair. Once that much power was surrendered, who would take it back? And who would set the farther limits? Nothing less than ominous. For inevitability and sadly, inevitably and sadly, all including this Holy Father would have forgotten the millennia Roman caution, whoever strikes at the Petrine papacy will die the death. Together, Pope and Cardinals would strike the Petrine papacy. So that's how he sets up the gravity of the situation. And of course, he signs it. And Gib Appleyard is playing such a... I, I say why, and, I, and I'm reading it. I said, why? Why? I mean, out of everything you've given, why this? And um, I don't know. It, it goes it goes beyond that um, in a little bit. I want to see what you think about that because I don't want to get to Apple Yard again. Well, you're thinking he's going to pump the brakes. Yeah. Um, and this is where at the front of your mind is the factional nature of this. Not only, so I, I thought he was going to pump the brakes even though uh, with, with, with the Slavic Pontificate, it's kind of the night in which all cows are black, as, as Hegel once uh, joked to Holdelene. It's like, okay, so uh, this will be where he draws the line, and he doesn't, he's not complicit with the evil guys who hate him and want to drink his blood. Because, and we're kind of like, well, we have a clue that it's not because John Paul II, you know, died in, in the throne of Peter. He did not do any such thing. So the, the fact part of the faction had me thinking that up until the very line where he signed it, I thought he was not going to sign it. And even his, uh, if you go to page 551, the previous page, yeah, the air of defiance in the middle of the page there, new paragraph, the Slavic Pope's nod of recognition to each was a fraternal greeting. Great. But just as much was it notice served that he knew each man for what he was. Uh, he'd elevated some of them to the cardinalatial purple, he had seen all of them flourish during his papacy. He knew their in-house allies and their external associations. When he had learned of their Masonic connections and their financial finaglings, when he knew enough to cashier them, in other words, he had not interfered with them. He had let them have their head, even when they had encroached continually and substantially into papal matters and petrine issues. This was, it turned out to be, like double-inflected foreshadowing. You couldn't know it was foreshadowing. It was either foreshadowing or the setup of the, the prefiguring of a contrast where he was for once not going to go along with them. That's what I thought it was. It turned out to be just straight-up foreshadowing. He was saying that, that the Slavic Pope's going to go along with him. A couple pages later, he does. Yes. I'm shocked. And I'm glad you brought that up because it's a perfect— uh, I, had, I had highlighted that, but I forgot to write it down in my notes— 
perfect that before this meeting even took place, he acknowledged the rats he was sitting with. And still, and still, he he dragged, uh, what, what is going on here? But I'm telling you, there is a little bit of, there's a hint here, at least for me, maybe it turns out to be wrong, but who knows? And for everybody in the chat rooms, I'm watching you, I'm loving the conversation over there, keep it up, and we're going to get to your thread in a little bit. Now we get to Gib Appleyard. Now, he's playing a far more prominent role here as he's trying to balance out his need to, as a professional to secure footing for American foreign policy on population control and also to get an understanding on the Pope's leanings with Russia. The Slavic Pope is so, so articulate in, you know, throwing things back at Apple Yard about, you know, are you still in touch with Gorbachev? Oh, yeah, sure, I'm in touch with Gorbachev. But you know what? He's your guy, too. You're paying, he, the West is paying him. He gets, he, he's flying on all the same planes. I mean, there is no, there, there is nothing really going on here. He's an atheist and all that stuff. I, I love the back and forth between them. And, um, you know, he meets with the Pope again, Appleyard does, in another warm yet serious encounter between the two. And we get another glimpse into Appleyard's sense of fairness and his sentimentality and, um, and the way that he has, he has, he sees structural value in Western tradition, and he knows that to steamroll that will bring a hell, a hellscape into into existence. And it says it right here on five fifty seven. If the plot against the Slavic Pope were successful, Washington would probably be left to deal with a crowd of theological thugs and geopolitical miscreants. That was deeply important to Appleyard as a Rosicrucian, as a Universalist. And as a career servant of his government, he believed that there was and should always be room in God's cosmos for true diversity of belief, and that no one should be dragooned into a monolithic ideology. He had no doubt that the Strasbourg group, the individuals who hankered after the universal power of the Roman Catholic apparatus, were globalist in their ambitions, but that was so far from his own universalism as to make uh, Gibson shudder. Globalism, at least as he thought of the term, meant the fashioning of a global village in which, come hell or high water, no one would be different from anyone else. There would be one frame for everything and everything in one frame. The element globalists did not insist on was the one element that made Roman Catholicism so valuable in a volatile world, the stability of a cohesive moral underpinning as the basis of personal and community life. So even though we have a Rosicrucian here, we have a Mason, we have someone who is not uh, not ready to you know go to confession and start receiving the Eucharist, but he is seeing once again that there's this. It's not even those who are considered globalist, universalist, or non-Christian. It, that is not even a monolithic group, and there's always been this very stark divide between people like. Benthock and Channing and the rest of them at the Council of Thirteen and people like Appleyard, and um, and I think once again, I th- I believe that that devotion to destruction, complete destruction and inversion, is really just something that resonates on a demonic spiritual level. It's another reason why I believe that um, even for all of the ways that the Slavic Pope is so malleable to these rat bastard cardinals. Why do they need to get rid of him? Because I think that his energetic presence is repulsive to these people who have cast their have cast their lot with a, a really, really um, 
disgusting cause. Yeah. Yeah. I, do I have you, Frank? Yeah, I'm here. Oh, okay. Yeah, you, you ended something. Uh, it reminds me of uh, a letter I saw about a year ago from um, uh, a British, or not British, Scottish right mason to um, General Washington in the late 1700s saying, hey, the Illuminate, you know, the French and German masonry, the Illuminism is, uh, it's crossed the Atlantic. It's, it's here in America and Washington, though he was, George Washington was a, a mason. Mm-hmm. He reminds me a little bit of our Gib Appleyard, uh, even, even in stature. And, um, you know, of course, Washington, um, most most likely all of all of the best historical sources say that you know he had a there at mount vernon a big picture of the virgin mary and it seems sounds like he made a deathbed uh, conversion to roman catholicism crossed the tiber at the last minute um reminds me of Appleyard and has for about the last 200 pages and he was very cautious about the you know the split in masonry as early as the late 18th century between the uh deistic I mean, I'm not trying to make it's all harmful stuff, but the theistic side and the uh, the illuminist, what they're calling atheism, but I think the outright um, Luciferian, uh, the the naked Luciferianism. Mm. So that reminds me of Gibb a lot, and and he's uh, a Gibson. I'm not on a first name basis with him, but but Appleyard seems to be uh, true blue, if we can say that. Yeah. Do you still feel that way after these pages? Yes. And, and, and I'll tell you why, because there's more There's more coming up right to the end here, because we're at the last three pages at 560, and I'll show you why. Now, here's 560. This is probably a very keen insight into why the Pope acquiesces. Why did he sign the protocol? Why doesn't he protest when the snakes move against him? The, at least this is what I'm, I'm holding in my mind to see if it, if it bears out toward the end. Second paragraph down. It says, now, Mr. Appleyard, it's the Pope and Appleyard are together. Now, Mr. Appleyard, you have asked me, in effect, if I like all this. Of course, I don't like it. Nobody with a knowledge of the realities could like it. But does that mean I'm going to undermine it? Oh, no, Mr. Appleyard. It will come to grieve all by itself it will come to grief all by itself and in any case i assure you that that is not the geopolitics which occupies me now i know he's talking a little bit more about do i uh, he's talking a little bit more about uh do i like the way that things are with russia and you know uh yeltsin coming in for gorbachev and things like that but i think that it could be a little bit more of a look into how things are with him and his church as well um do you like the way that things are no absolutely i i don't but there's no way to avoid the grief right now and and um and if i have to be the one to swallow the grenade maybe Maybe I can, and I assure you that not the, that's not the geopolitics which occupies me. Because he's said time and time again, especially to Appleyard, the, ge- the, the politics that, that uh, occupies him is the politics of, of, of heaven, the mandates of heaven. It, it was the last, the last session we did, session number eight, was that, 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 uh, that point where uh, the Slavic Pope made such a, such a confident confident um i what should i say a confident statement about why he moves 
how the Blessed Virgin moves him, what he's doing, and that it is real and it is it is very uh, it's very consequential. And that it was that confidence that, you know, Appleyard said that if he was any other person, he'd throw himself down and ask to be blessed and all that stuff. And and we thought it was a, in a wonderful time there. I still believe once again here that this is what really occupies him. And I, is it, some people would say that's no excuse to do the right thing. But it's, it's almost like when I said all throughout 2020 and 2021 when we were everybody had to put masks on up here in New York or and everywhere else and there's all these ridiculous regulations and I said well listen you have a choice you're as an individual you can walk into that CVS and you can refuse to wear your mask and when they tell you to put the mask on you can make a stand you can make a stink and then eventually the cops are going to throw you out in your ass. Your 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 uh, face is going to be on the wall as someone who's not allowed back in. And you didn't change the situation. And all you really did was limit the place that you can go get prune juice the next time your, your child is constipated. That's the, that's, the, that's the only thing that has changed here. I look at, um, obviously, the consequences when you're talking about the, the fate of millions of souls and, 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 the, uh, and a church is a lot bigger than you know the individual's choice of how to fight mask protocols and stuff but it's almost like that what are you going to do um you know um i don't know it got me thinking well you know jesus didn't send the apostles to rally a a fighting force to help him resist the arrest and avoid the crucifixion maybe this just has to happen and there's no way to get around it i don't know yeah i but i i think where the analogy falls short, Frank, is that we are, it's very clear, we're not permitted consequentialism. You may do no evil such that good may come from it. Mm. It's very, very clear in the Catholic moral philosophy and moral theology, even in, you know, the, the um, architectonic of what counts as the principle of double effect. It's, it's very clear in Thomistic action theory that it's you're fine to you're not doing any actual evil you, you know you feel like you're complying with evil when you you deal with the mass nazis and if you say hey well i'm gonna i'm gonna put it on this time because my kid needs my poor constipated kid needs prune juice yeah but that's not the same thing as the pope going along with the sunk golan mafia is essentially who this is on on changing a, a dogmatic discipline like you know female deaconesses or changing doing violence to the pontificate as he does here he pope john paul ii did not do this in real life but in our action here he's allowing the again a dogmatic discipline to change you know that they're going to be able to tell him when to um retire yeah so you're right so yeah that he's doing evil so that good may come of it and you're never allowed to do that uh that's the difference i would say got you Got you, and I and it's uh, okay. Well, that that definitely levels that out for sure. Um, I then so then again a flawed man on a very on a very I don't know tumultuous journey in life, and it's very consequential. Now we have a a goodbye, another cordial goodbye between the two. Five sixty one. Will you be returning to your country at once, Mr. Appleyard? The pontiff rose from his chair. It was time for his morning walk with Monsignor Daniel. Not quite holiness. Uh, Gibson felt comfortably, fell comfortably into step beside the Holy Father. I have some business to get through up north in the low countries first. 
I see. Well, when you arrive home, please carry my blessings with you for your family, for your country, for your people, the government. May the Holy Spirit Spirit give you wisdom to all of you. And then I cannot tell you how reassuring I find that prayer, Holiness. Appleyard found himself responding with a sentiment no other human being ever evoked in him. Mm-hmm. Here he is again, almost like wanting to be there. I'm impressed that you see the movement of the Holy Spirit as possible, even in a political system such as ours, which sets such an alien face in our time to the essence of Catholicism and Christianity itself. And then here, uh, at the last paragraphs, this really, um, this really did it for me. Appleyard and the Holy Father stepped into the, into the sunlight. There was a handshake and a parting glance before the Pope turned and leaving, leading, uh, leaning lightly on Sadowski's arm, entered the broad path leading into the private grounds behind the villa. As he watched him, Gibson considered his promise to Gladstone to do all he could to foster this man's permanence in the papacy. He considered, too, all the names that had figured into the conversation with the Slavic Pope, Yeltsin, Gorbachev, uh, uh, how do you say that? Sheridanze? I don't know yeah, that one. Yeah, yeah that, that was bad than I was going to do. I oh, don't know who that Reagan, Bush, Thatcher, Cole, Mitterrand, Clinton, Mandela, those and many more had come up explicitly or by implication. Yet of all the greats, it seemed to Appleyard that only this one, only this Slavic Pope, was worth saving, worth protecting, worth perpetuating. So long as much a man cut a figure on the international stage, for so long would wisdom and salvation and progress be possible for the society of nations. Poor, poor Europe. Not that long ago, Gibb recalled the Slavic Pope had written those words to the EC committee charged with filling the post of Secretary General. Poor, poor world, he might have said. His mind deep in such thoughts, Appleyard watched the two figures recede into the gardens, one robed in a somber black, the other in white. Before the path took them both from view, the figure in white turned back for an instant to wave farewell. Holy Father, Gibson said, half aloud, raised his hand to return the gesture. I, I, I gotta say here, him walking away, the Pope walking away, in this position he is, Appleyard feeling all this stuff for him, this affection for him, uh, it, it ends with this inner storm of emotion that I don't really know how to put my finger on right now, but maybe soon. Because the character, you know, we, you and I just said a couple of minutes ago, I, I, I posed the question, maybe this is, this is what he felt his role is, and you came and said, yeah, well, maybe, but no. It's, uh, the, you know, that, you know, dogmatically, no, and he is, he has done violence to the church. And then again, here is a character portrayed by Malachi Martin, the Slavic Pope, such a gentle, agreeable, kind man, truly holy in that sense. And Appleyard, like I, I believe many of the readers, sees him largely standing alone in a meat grinder of a situation with the enemies of Christ, the enemies of human freedom on all sides of him, and he's just drifting from lose-lose situation to the next with a genuine smile on his face, his faith never broken. And honestly, I just hope, I don't know, I just, I, I don't know. It, it really is just a storm of emotions with this guy, with this character, how it's portrayed. And uh, I don't know, I felt very sad as he walked away and turning around again just to say farewell. Just so kind, but again, so flawed. Yeah, and oh, I mean, that is the story. It doesn't matter how, what traditionalist you ask, this is the impression. I mean, he's the Pope of our 
childhoods, Frank, uh, yours and mine. And they're like, yeah, always kind, always the true believer in the hearts of Jesus, Mary, and Joseph. I, I just, it's the mystery of iniquity. I, I, the mystery of sin. I don't know what to make of him, but yeah, he's a true believer. I think you pegged it when you said the, um, the Luciferians in the Cardinalate that that just can't stand to have him. He's not that bad for this situation. The reason they can't is just because he has a legitimate uh, supernatural belief. He has the gift of supernatural faith. He believes in the sacraments. He believes in the you know all of all of the dogmas handed down. Uh, he doesn't want to change any of the the sacraments. He believes in uh, Fatima. Mm-hmm. You know, Jesus, Mary, Joseph, be with us on the way. He he loves it all. He just he just doesn't have the strength to stand up. I mean, when they keep saying it's a distinction without a difference, to say, well, there's theoretical power and practical power. What you can, what he could do with the stroke of a pen, is take the red hats, as we say, from all of those wicked cardinals, even the ones that he'd elevated, and um, um, and you know, basically defrock them. And take their red hats. They still have the ontological mark of priests, but put them into quiet penance, and just and and hold this consistory, which is where uh, a, a pope makes new cardinals. Just put in a bunch, put in a bunch of slattery, and and you know stack the ranks. The, the you know uh, what is it? The rule of nine that saved whatever it was. The stitch in time to save nine. Yeah. You know when when FDR was still, just do it back to them. Like we're always saying, we conservatives. Just just pack the courts like Pope Francis has been doing. He has another consistory in August, right? Why do concern if, if we're to believe that JP2 is good? And I do, uh, you know, with all the, the um, redactions and, and caveats that you're mentioning here, why not just get rid of everyone, even if they come to kill you the next day with a stroke of a pen, plan a consistory and name who the cardinals are going to be before you're going to be killed? Just put in a bunch of hardcore right, right-wing tratty Catholics, and I don't understand where's the distinction without a difference between theoretical and practical power. There, you're right. You're right. I, I say this every day of my Catholic life. I don't get it. You're right. I, if, when it comes down to it, why are we even making excuses if there is that kind of power center uh, in the papal office? Because what? That's that's huge. I mean, in in the United States. It's not as, thankfully, thankfully, it's not as easy as a president being able to do it. They're trying to make it so. Right. You know, it's almost like they're trying to create a papacy uh, in, in the, it's, it's really incredible. But, um, you know, that's a, that's, that's a papacy for a, a religion of the same kind of people who are trying to destroy the church. Um, and they've 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 gotten into you know many denominations. It's not just the Catholic Church. It's just that this is the most prominent in the world. Um, I mean, you, we see this happening everywhere. Peter Kraft always says that that the, the the goal you know Peter Kraft, great great thinker of our time. Um, if you haven't read him, that what they're trying to do uh, these um, radical humanists, secular humanists, is to absolutize the politics and to relativize the religion. And as a mark of that, or some sort of you know watermark, is to do what you said. They're trying to take away the even in that that um, YouTube video you sent me, two and a half hours long. They're trying to take away the absolute monarchy of you know heaven and earth, uh, the pontific you know the, the the papacy, 
and they're trying to co- sort of create one here in the United States. Of course, it's in the it's a middle point in the process and the way to globalism, but they're trying to make a kind of pontificate of the presidency, and that was imagined by Lincoln, then by Roosevelt's both presidents, I would say, then by uh, in between Wilson. Then by LBJ, then by Obama, whatever the Bushes were up to. I think it was One World Order, New World Order stuff. And um, to, but yeah, so it's like this, doing doing the exact opposite. We we should have a, a papacy in the the throne of Peter. We should not have one in the American presidency. Right, right. It's the exact opposite. It truly is. Um, okay, well, that got us to the end of the segment. Before we go into the thread on Reddit, I just want to say I think that the next best segment we can do, it goes from 562, which we, we just ended right there, to 605. 562 to 605. 600, page 605. Um, after that, it's 605 to the very end, 646. So today is session 9, session 10, and then session 11 will be the last of the book. I can't believe it. Um, so, so uh, from 562 to 605 is what we'll have for next week. And um, let's get to this, the, the thread now. Summer 711 says, I don't have my book with me, so just a few short observations from my notes. 541, Apple Yard and the Pope negotiating. The Vatican has leverage with the U.S. and Intel. Why wasn't it possible to use them to help the investigating slash weeding out of crimes that occurred within the church in the U.S.? It seems like all the secrecy and payouts shouldn't have been necessary. It's true. You know, it's, um, I had, um, I had, uh, Frank and Jim Zell call into the show again last night who are, hot on the trail of investigating this satanic ritual abuse situation in Utah that nobody is talking about. Major Coven is being, uh, it seems, is being uncovered. And nobody's reporting on it, but they have a source on the ground. And when we were talking about some of the things that are in these horrific reports, horrific reports, um, I've seen a little bit of it now, and it is horrific. It's a thing of nightmares. And Mm -hmm. They had said on the on the show last night that it's 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 important to realize and to remember, being a Satanist is not illegal, but when you commit to acts of violence, it's the murder, it's the it's the sacrificial offerings, it's the cruelty to animals, it's all that stuff. Uh, that is that is a universal situation of great concern right there and it's it's true here too apple yard and the pope they're, they're talking about it i mean it, wh- is it not something that apple yard would would find um important to break up these ritualistic uh you know a, a, abusive circles why not why no down low collaboration with that then again as we know a lot of police departments are involved in it there's a there's just people in high places that are are insulating this. So perhaps that's what's going on there. Apple Yard would probably put his neck in a noose as well. It's really uh, it's it's shitty. Now, Five sixty, the Pope seems to accept sin and destruction of humanity as inevitable. Only souls can be saved. Yes, that we were talking about that. And then poor poor Europe became poor poor world. 
Garden, Gardenia B says, I was struck by the Pope's message emphasizing that there exists an organized uh, attack on vital unity of each nation, specifically the family, the family of nations, and the human race. Pa- page 528. We see it highly magnified today. And then the last thing we have here on this thread, Music Zealous Idea says, Is a pale horse by William Cooper on plans for a book club? Uh, I don't know. I mean, William Cooper's pale horse is more like a encyclopedia. It, this, this has a narrative to it, and we can follow along, and there are characters that have arcs, and I don't, I don't, I don't know how much nonfiction I'll be doing. I think it's a little bit better to do fiction, historical fiction, things like that. But uh, it was a little bit of a shorter uh, thread participation. Then again, I, I put this up a little bit late, so might be my fault. But any closing thoughts or, or details or anything you got, Timothy, go right ahead. Number one, even just covering this stuff on your show, Frank, uh, be careful with the... Uh, I know. Utah. I know. No, I'm serious. I'm serious. That's... Uh you got to be careful <laughs> I, I listen I I uh, the hearing about it, it it's something that you see break in the news but it only goes so far and then suddenly we see that it's almost like somebody struck you know you know how when people in, in the old west struck oil if the oil was just kind of like bubbling to the surface and you knew yeah. that there was there was a 200 year well beneath it yeah, that's just kind of what's been going on with this. I'm, I mean, obviously, I'm not uh, making calls and knocking on doors, but it it, it does make me very uncomfortable uh, to a point, and I'm uh, I try to be as personally uninvolved as possible. Yeah, no, I mean, it's it's good to expose. I ain't saying not to expose it, but you're also the you know biggest mouthpiece for uh, exposure there. So th- th- even though you're not knocking on doors, that's uh, yeah. You don't want to get got. Uh... Oh, yeah, I, I was just going to point out on um, there's, this was really important to one of the central themes of the book on page 549. I have it on voice stream on my PDF here. So half the time I'm looking there and I also have it here. I, I read it. I go back and forth. But um, this is really important thematically uh, when maybe I'll go to the book. I'm always getting caught back and forth. It's when we talk about old glad and um his relationship with pio nono pius the ninth you know one of one of my favorites you know the the tower of the winds which is a very very cool description uh it, it's we're being brought full circle from the beginning of the book to the end of the book you're talking about arcs and he says, uh, where is it? I'm looking at my highlighting here. I'm doing a little bit of stalling to get to. It, it, it is an irony. It was an irony of the gentlest sort that the most convenient place near at hand and yet not under the jurisdiction of Cardinal Valdez turned out to be that ancient Tower of the Winds that old Paul Gladstone had visited with uh, Pope Pius IX over 100 years before and on which he had patterned the Tower Chapel at Windswept House, our, our title. Anything's from the title, if it touches it with a 10-foot clown pole, then it's important, right. you know, just right. as a reader of fiction. Christian's first sight of that place was an eerie experience, another kind of antennae moment. It stood midway between the two sections of the Biblioteca Apostolica, the Museo Sacro, and the Museo Profano. Terragente led him up a steep stairway to the topmost floor of the tower, 
I'll be back for you the minute Valdez closes shop. The pick, the pick lock promises promised as he disappeared. Uh, I like this line here. Left to wait in the dim light of the single uh, electric bulb. Chris knew immediately where he was, the room of the Meridian, which which is um, cool and spooky. His memory of old Glad's journal descriptions dovetailed with everything he saw. He surveyed the walls covered with frescoes depicting the eight winds as godlike figures and with scenes from ancient Roman bucolic life during the four seasons. He paced the zodiac diagram on the floor, designed to coordinate during daylight hours with the sun's rays slanting through a slit in one of the frescoed walls. He looked up to see the anemometer on the ceiling and knew its indoor pointer was moved by an outward weather vane to indicate which of the eight winds was blowing across the eternal city. I forgot all this middle one. I'm, I'm looking for one line here. That room of the Meridian cast a spell, but it wasn't the spell Chris would have expected. He was lulled by the keening of the winds, by the movement of the ceiling pointer, by the peaceful scenes of a pastoral life that was no more. So it's a weird mixture of mystique and suspense and nostalgia that really connects the beginning of the book to the end of the book. It tells me we're uh, on our, on our denou- we haven't talked much about denouement, right? Is where, you know, every plot goes like this to the peak and then you go down a little bit before resolution feels like we're getting to the climax. So, yeah. um, no, it, it, it definitely, and it's crazy because, you know, uh, you have that, that climb rising action, the climax, then falling action. And I, there's so, there, there's, I don't know. I would have to imagine that falling action is going to be like the last 15 pages because right. there's so many things that still have to be done. The big connections that have to be made between the diary and the enthronement, the managing of the availing time, the resignation protocol, which obviously was never triggered to get rid of him. So, right. so maybe some, maybe something actually came in the way of this. Uh, maybe Appleyard did. Maybe there is some kind of an inference or, or some kind of a, a hint that Appleyard did work some magic behind the scenes to to help the Pope out. Maybe he is looking for a way to help him out. I don't know. Yeah. Who, who, who knows? Because you know, we we have memory now of Benedict being the one who resigned, not JP two. He was he was Pope as you as as we've talked about. This came out in 96. It looks like it's portraying a time around 93, 94. He was Pope for over 10 years more. So right. it, uh, and he lived out his natural life. So and uh, Benedict was likely forced out by two, Frank, two of the seven men that are in the room that JP2 is looking at, you know, with this defiant glance. He, it's like, it's like, almost like you just substitute benedict for jp2 in here and two of those guys are the re- are the guys that folks like me talk about when we talk about the the St. Gallen mafia Oreatini and uh and uh michael cutinho are are the two leaders of the St. Gallen mafia they're not even just soldiers they're the leaders and it's almost like you just substitute in benedict for jp2 and benedict was known as jp2's right hand hmm. there's something going on there yeah and who knows who knows what pieces we can fit together over the next the next uh, few pages so until 605 i uh, uh, tim all the best to you and the family thanks again for another another night this is great you too bud yeah, yeah, ladies and gentlemen have a wonderful weekend happy father's day happy father's day to you tim you too buddy you too i'll talk to you bye all right Father's Day. Happy Father's Day. Good night and farewell. How are you guys going to eat? I need to figure that out right now. Stay safe. Talk to you soon. And have a wonderful, wonderful 
weekend.